0: Let's look together now at the book of Acts, chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, and let us read this chapter. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter, or literally Passover, to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, And he smote Peter on the side, and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out, and followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken, named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers. What was become of Peter? And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. May God bless the reading of Acts chapter 12 to our hearts today. This is a fascinating chapter from beginning to end. Perhaps the last uh, verse might better be fitted into the next chapter. But certainly these 24 verses of Acts chapter 12 give us a very detailed window and view into life in the early church in Jerusalem. It gives us sort of a snapshot of how evil men were scheming against the church and how God preserved them and preserved his truth. There is a dramatic reversal of fortunes here comparing Peter and Herod. These are the main characters in this chapter. Herod... Also known as Herod Agrippa I, was a local king, we might say. He was sort of a king under Caesar there in that part of the earth, in Palestine. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, who had been in power uh, when Jesus was born. What we know about this Herod is that he was about 54 years old at this time. He was in the seventh year of his rule as king. He was a Jewish proselyte, we might say. He observed the Jewish religion in a very outward and nominal way. He at least identified with the Jews religiously. He is clearly, even from what is mentioned in this chapter, a man who is as proud as he is powerful. He is a man of political instincts. He is, in some ways, Petulant, impatient. He is certainly ruthless, has no regard for human life. He obviously thought that he was in control of every situation and that he was untouchable. Then the other main characters in this chapter are these two apostles James and Peter. James is identified of course as the brother of John in verse 2. And there's Peter also. Uh, Peter and James were among Christ's earliest disciples. They apparently had known each other before Christ came along. They were neighbors. They were in the same occupation as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. After Peter and James became disciples, they followed Jesus closely, and they, along with brother John, Formed what we think of as this inner circle of the 12. And sometimes Jesus would take them and teach them things that the others did not get in on. We see that especially at uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. These are the main characters here. There's a couple of minor characters that we might note um mentioned by name the first is Mary the mother of John Mark mentioned in verse 12 and though she's mentioned in a way just in passing we see that she opened her home to be used as a venue for a prayer meeting an all-night prayer meeting. There is some speculation that her home was also that mentioned in the four Gospels as the location of the upper room where Jesus and the disciples gathered the night before he was crucified. The other minor character mentioned by name here is this young woman named Rhoda in verse 13. She is evidently a servant girl, and she was, by default, the doorkeeper. And she was the first to see the answer to prayer for Peter the first to realize that the prayers had been answered. I mention Mary and Rhoda here because we ought to thank God for godly women and young women who serve the Lord in capacities that are less noticeable, maybe less appreciated than they ought to be, but nonetheless, they faithfully serve the Lord. I want to point out from this chapter several lessons that we might learn. First of all, we learn from Acts chapter 12 that rulers in this world often sacrifice truth and principle on the altar of political expedience. We think that we are living in times like those, but there is truly nothing new under the sun. This has been the method of of ungodly rulers ever since Acts chapter 12, obviously. In verse 1, Herod, it seems on a pure whim. No reason. At least none stated. We do not read that the Jews put him up to this as uh, they did with Peter a little later. It seems like he volunteered on his own to stretch forth his hands to vex certain of the church. To persecute and in the case of James, to murder him. What had James and others in the church done other than hold forth the truth of the gospel and be the most harmless of neighbors that people in Jerusalem could possibly have? There's no reason whatsoever for this other than identification with Christ and with his gospel. Rulers often sacrifice truth and principle on the altar of political expedience. Herod thought that this would gain him favor with the Jews, evidently. And today in some parts of the world, we see the same principle at work and the same type of people, the same Herods today. Even in our part of the world, we have our share of Herods who make their threats and who, if they were able, would make a short work of us as he did of James. We should expect injustice from a sinful world and from rulers who are unregenerate. Whenever there is anything resembling justice and uprightness from unbelievers, we should count it a special blessing of God's common grace, the political winds blow against God's people most always. And they are certainly blowing against us today and against believers around the earth. We are like little pawns on a large board that is a game played by power-hungry rulers like Herod. And we must stand firm, as did the Christians in Acts chapter 12 in Jerusalem. Another lesson to Mark is that rulers grow bolder in their aggression against the people of God. And we see this in Herod's case here. At first, in verse 1, he starts out persecuting the church in a more general way, just stretching forth his hands to cause trouble, to persecute. And none are mentioned by name here. Then, He sets his sights upon James, the brother of John. He moves from what is simply called certain ones in the church to those who were in the office of apostles and who were leaders of the church. And he takes James and kills him, kills him with a sword. Evidently, he is snatched up and his head taken off rather suddenly. And then Herod goes even further and becomes more, yet more bold. He goes after the leader of the apostles, the natural leader, Peter. This shows us that Evil often escalates. It's the snowball that gets bigger and bigger. It's interesting to note also that in the process, the Jews, uh, generally speaking, became complicit in Herod's actions. It says in verse 3 that Herod saw that it pleased the Jews that he had killed James. And again, without reading too much between the lines here, the picture that we get is not that the Jews had requested the death of James, but that Herod did that sort of voluntarily. Then he sees the approval and the smiles from the Jews, and that encourages him to go after Peter. But as Matthew Henry comments the Jews became complicit in the murder of James even after the fact because they approved of it. They put their stamp of approval upon it. Another thing to note is how cheap the life of believers is in the estimation of earthly rulers and even earthly people generally. Those who are enemies of the gospel care nothing for the life of those who stand for the gospel. This, beloved, is simply the reality and it is to be expected in a fallen, cursed world. James is murdered suddenly, without notice, apparently without any court proceedings, without any rule of law, without any evidence. It's just raw power from Herod that arrests James, takes off his head. There was not even time for the church to gather together and pray for this situation. Herod fully intended to kill Peter also, but he determined to do this in a more public way and in a more drawn out way. He would arrest him, put him in prison. Wait until after the Passover feast and then have some sort of a public execution, it seems, and bring him forth to the people, as it says at the end of verse four, so that the Jews might witness this execution, that they might rejoice in it and gloat in it, even as they did the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ in a public way. This is how little the life of believers is valued by the ungodly. And I recognize that in some respects it's not just the life of of the godly that is uh, disrespected. We live in a day in which it's just life in general. I was listening yesterday to a report about how unashamedly and openly the World Economic Forum calls for the reduction of the population of the earth, as if just getting rid of lives by the billions meant nothing. And they seem to be debating about what is the right number to allow to live on earth. It varies from half a billion to perhaps as many as 2 billion well there's about 8 billion on the earth right now that gives you an idea of how little human life means and when we see the the murder business in abortion clinics and the in some countries no doubt right around the corner for us in our country, the, uh, the murder of the aged who are just a, a drain on the, the medical system and the financial system and so on. We should expect that some of the first lives that will be considered uh, up for grabs on the chopping block will be you and me, if you're a Christian. That's how it was in Jerusalem in the first century. Well, there are some encouraging uh, things to note from this chapter also. We note that a church should be quick to pray. As as soon as Peter was put into prison, we read in verse 5 that prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. They prayed constantly. They prayed, no doubt, for the days of the Passover feast. And even though it must have seemed that Peter's life was as good as gone, that his fate was sealed just as certainly as James was, nevertheless, the saints gathered to pray, and they prayed for Peter's life, obviously. They're asking the Lord to spare him. The, the, the prayers of the church here, were no doubt individual throughout the day, but we do get uh, an idea here that they were gathering to pray, or at least those who could, when they could, were gathering together to pray, to join their hearts and voices in prayer for this urgent need. And the praying included all-night sessions for some, And it may be that it was in more than one home by what it says there in verse 17, uh, where Peter says, go show these things unto James and the brethren. Perhaps they were praying in another location at that same hour, uh, quite possibly. Let me quote Matthew Henry on uh, an important point here. Prayers and tears are the church's arms. He means armaments, weaponry. Prayers and tears are the church's arms. Therewith she fights not only against her enemies, but for her friends. They're praying here for Peter, obviously. We don't know if any of them went to Herod's court or maybe his residence to file a petition and try to get a stay of execution for Peter or anything like that. If anything like that did occur, it's not mentioned here. What is mentioned is what we're supposed to understand is the most significant and the most important thing that they did, and that was to pray. Pray. Their prayers are the focus of the narrative here. And let us pray. Let us grow in prayer. Let us learn more to pray. And pray for the Lord's work and the Lord's people and one another. Pray for those who are persecuted for the faith and those who are in danger. Furthermore, we learn here that God answers prayer. The Lord heard their prayers and he was pleased to answer them in a very remarkable way. And once you've read this chapter, you never forget it. You you, you can just see the, the scene in your mind so vividly that. The Lord comes, and, and will not take time to reread it, but from verse 6 down through verse 17, this is the most detailed part of the chapter, how that, that God brings Peter miraculously out of prison from this heavy, heavily guarded place, brings him out to the street, and then uh, Peter goes and knocks on the door where the prayer meeting is going on, And the people can't believe that their prayers have been answered. It's almost comical in a way. It took quite a bit to convince them that God had, in fact, answered their prayers. Seems like Peter at first couldn't even believe it. He had to come to himself. He thought he was just uh, having some kind of a vision himself. God answers prayer. He doesn't always answer it the way that we expect or maybe in the way of what we ask, but he answers. And he may answer in a different way. He may answer in a better way. But he answers prayer, and prayer is not in vain. And an example like this of an extraordinary answer to prayer should encourage us to pray without ceasing and to persevere in prayer. We ask great things of a great God. As the hymn says, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. We ought to ask God for great things as well as small things. There is no chain that God cannot break. Peter it says was fastened with not one but two chains and God released him from them both. May God help us to to pray and to pray more. Another Little lesson to note here from this chapter is that in the midst of danger, believers may rest and be at peace. We see that in the case of Peter in verse 6. The next day has been circled on the calendar as the day that Peter will be executed. And it's going to be done in a public way. He'll be brought out. The Jews will all be gathered together. And uh, maybe his head will be taken off. or, Or maybe some other way of execution. Probably Peter was aware of this. Assuming that he was aware of it. We find him sound asleep. Sleeping like a baby. Now, if you knew that you were going to be executed tomorrow morning, how well would you sleep tonight? Well, with God's promises. Not necessarily promises of avoiding that fate in the morning, but his promises not to leave us or forsake us. We may rest at peace. We may sleep like the baby. Peter was so sound asleep, the angel had to hit him to wake him up, it says in verse 7. And the wording of verse 11 leaves us to think that Peter is still a little drowsy here. It says he came to himself wasn't sure if this was if he was awake or asleep yet <clears throat> this is a beautiful example of casting our cares upon the lord in full assurance that he cares for us peter writes that by inspiration in 1st peter 5 you know god knows our circumstances he knows our needs we sang that hymn this morning, or no, we sang it just now, didn't we, this afternoon. Not a, a, a shaft of lightning can hit us unless the God of heaven and earth allows it and sees fit. We are in the best of hands with God. There are threats and dangers and I know I have something of an addiction to follow conspiracies and consider what may be coming down the road for us. But uh, we must not let that destroy the peace within that comes from knowing God. Now we get to the last couple of points here that are very significant. God is able to humble the most proud in just a moment. We begin the chapter with Herod as the untouchable king. And he gets angry and he kills people. Then he goes home and eats supper, you know. He's so angry that after Peter is is has disappeared the next morning, and instead of having this big gathering of Jews for this public execution, nothing's going to happen and the people are going to be disappointed and Herod's going to be embarrassed and he doesn't like to be embarrassed publicly. What does he do? he takes these 16 guards and has them all killed apparently they are the ones called the keepers there in verse 19 they're described as uh, in verse 4 as four quaternions that's 4 times 4 16 men taking working shifts watching him around the clock Here is this untouchable Herod. Anyone who embarrasses him will be executed. He's so angry, he leaves town for a while to cool down. He goes down from Judea to Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to hang out for a while. And then in Caesarea, he confronts another political situation that Angered him. The details are not disclosed, but uh, the residents of these towns mentioned, a Tyre and Sidon, uh, north of Caesarea, there were in some sort of situation with Herod that they needed to cozy up to him and regain his friendship because evidently he was withholding food from them and they want to eat. And so they they humble themselves and the first thing they do is to make Herod's servant their friend, this man named Blastus in verse 20. And then they approach Herod and lick his boots all the more the way it reads or the way I understand it they are the ones who are present there in on the the final day of Herod's life when he makes this public speech and they though the people probably despise Herod They have to pretend like they love him and they say, oh, this is the greatest speech we've ever heard. This isn't just a man speaking. This is a God speaking. And Herod, instead of saying, now, wait a minute, that's really over the top. You shouldn't say such a thing as that. He eats it all up. He's enjoying it. He is lifted up with pride. He takes a liking to the flattery. He's lifted up with the pride of the devil himself. And here comes the judgment of God instantly upon him. Immediately, it says in verse 23, the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. He expired. That is, he breathed his last breath. Josephus corroborates this event, telling how suddenly it came, how quickly it occurred. And so God is able to humble the most proud in just a moment. This man who had been so powerful and proud and ruthless, untouchable, was touched. Touched by the death angel. God showed him who was really God. And it wasn't Herod. The proverb tells us pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Herod is a classic example of that proverb. The lesson for us is to humble ourselves before God. Confess our creaturehood, our weakness, our dependence upon him. And give God glory for all things. That is the, the, the chief indictment against Herod in verse 21. He gave not God the glory. Let us give God the glory for all things, in all things, and steal none of it for ourselves. This point shows that God allows evil to advance only as far as it pleases him and serves his purpose. He allowed Herod to go only so far and then cut him off. And God allows evil men to this day to live and to do evil deeds only for a while. Then he brings it to an end. He reverses the fortunes. He comes to the aid and deliverance of his people. He will certainly do so in eternity in in a final way. And again and again, he does so in time as well it is a reversal of the fortunes here herod has peter on death row and at the end of the chapter peter is free and herod is dead that is what some would call divine poetic justice and god is good at that This chapter is a a little snapshot, a a cameo picture of this great principle. And though God's people are outnumbered in this world and, humanly speaking, outpowered in this world, God is with us. Infinite power is with us. And God will vindicate himself and his truth when he is ready and we must patiently wait on him now one last thing to consider and learn from this chapter and that is this chapter shows a display of divine sovereignty in the different circumstances of believers we have these two apostles, James and Peter. Men who were very much alike in many ways, as far as their, where they lived and what they did for a living. They're becoming disciples, following the Lord, being in the inner circle of disciples. Men very much alike in many ways. And yet, James... Was murdered and Peter was delivered. We see here the diversity of God's providence with individuals, with His people, from one believer to another. <clears throat> James. Got to go home early. Peter had to stay on and work overtime. James's work was done. But God had more work for Peter to do. But Peter would eventually be martyred also. As Jesus had foretold. So you look at these two men. And the different outcomes in this chapter. For each of them. And the explanation that many today would give is Peter must have had more faith. If James had had the faith that Peter had, he would have been spared. He would have been released. Or he would never have been taken. (coughs) And if you want to enjoy life like Peter and not have it Come to an end like James, then just have Peter's faith. That concept is not even hinted at in this chapter in any way whatsoever. That is not only an unsatisfying answer, it's a very a cruel answer because it leaves us saying anyone who has any difficulty or trouble is lacking faith and it's their own fault. And beloved, you don't need me to remind you of this, but I'll say it anyway, that kind of, of religion and that approach to God's blessings and faith is not only not found in Acts 12, it's not found in the word of God anywhere. And yet multitudes follow that line of thinking, or maybe it's a lack of thinking today. Many have gotten on that treadmill of prosperity religion. And they have run and run and run for all that it's worth and finally fallen off the treadmill worn out, disillusioned, cynical because it didn't work for them. Well, there is a better explanation and that is that God distributes afflictions and mercies according to his will that God is sovereign over all of the affairs of mankind generally and of his people particularly and this is a mystery to us but this is how God operates while one saint suffers another enjoys ease and it's not because one was less faithful than another while one endures bondage another enjoys freedom and when we read of these persecuted people in Kenya and China and Korea and Eritrea and all, it, it, it baffles our understanding to consider why do we still enjoy so much ease and freedom? And while we must not just pass it off lightly, and we ought to think deeply on these things. We ought not to think in an unbiblical way. And we ought to recognize that God dispenses providences according to his will. And there is much mystery to us about it all. One is taken sick, another remains in good health. One dies from a disease, another recovers from a disease. A couple of friends A couple of years ago in the same church had uh, COVID and one of them recovered and one went to be with the Lord and the one who recovered said that uh, the one that really recovered was the one that went to be with the Lord. While one of God's children is poor, another is rich. God distributes gifts and opportunities in widely varying measures according to His will. One is greatly used to shake a continent And influence a generation. While another who is equally faithful has little fruit over many years. One preaches to multitudes but another preaches to just a handful. God uses one believer to bring many people to Christ. And another brings only a precious few. One sees all of his children saved. Another sees none of his children saved. Both equally faithful and prayerful and diligent. As far as churches go, some churches are what I would call big gears in God's machine. and Some churches are little small gears. And yet, If we can say it with reverence, God's machine requires all sizes of gears. And we must be faithful in what he's given us to do. God's dealings are a mystery to us in many ways. And we must be content to leave it with him. In fact, if we compared chapter 9 of Acts with chapter 12, we would see this: these differing providences. Here are two persecutors of the church. One is uh, his persecution is ended by his conversion. Another, his persecution is ended by his being eaten of worms. God could have saved Herod just like he did Saul of Tarsus. This is the mystery of God's providence. And so I would just emphasize this as we close. In all of these mysterious providences, and the unfolding of God's plan in different ways... In all of this, we must simply trust him and be faithful to him. We must be content to remain ignorant of why God does it the way he does it. Perhaps someday in heaven, we will see things more clearly than we do now. But until then, we must walk by faith and not by sight. No doubt we will look back and say that he did all things well. It couldn't have been better. We will look back and say, now it all makes sense. If not in this life, then certainly in in the, the glorified state, Job looks back and says, now it all makes sense. And so let us trust the Lord where we cannot understand Him. And if you're a James, thank God. If you're a Peter, thank God. Or anywhere in between, thank God.